But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. It's good to see everybody. It's good to be back in the land where I don't have to wear socks. Man, I think it's been at least 30 years since I wore socks that many days in a row. Uh, I'm not exaggerating, Uh, uh, but uh, thank you all. Uh, You know, Jerry's uh, surgery went really well. The doctors were extremely pleased. They they felt like they got all of the tumor out of the out of his uh, uh, skull, and they uh, feel like they also got the seeds of it. So they're really hopeful that it's not going to grow back and come back. And just want to say from our family, thank you for all the cards, the texts, the prayers, the calls to MJ. That when he was lonely, it just meant so much to all of us. We we felt your love and support for sure. Uh, and they are not here this morning. It'll be a couple of weeks. He's still very swollen and. And we're having to be cautious, make sure he doesn't trip and fall. Uh, so we're keeping him in environments where uh, we can be a little safe. But I know that uh, whenever he's not here, he's always watching virtually. Uh, thank goodness, thank the Lord for that technology now, that those who aren't with us physically can be with us in spirit as they worship. So, well, we are returning to uh, our series in Luke. And I want to start by having you answer this question, share your response with the person next to you or near you. Okay, here you go. When you are mistreated or abused or taken advantage of or treated poorly, what is your typical initial reaction? When somebody does you wrong, does you dirty, what's your typical initial reaction? Go ahead, share it. Yeah. <clears throat> I see a lot of you smiling kind of sheepishly. I don't know what that means. But, uh, you know, uh, those uh, who study humanity, uh, brain science teaches us that um, typical per- typically we have one of three responses when we are kind of attacked in some way. You know, some people fight. They, they punch back. If you are verbally assaulted, you assault back with words. Or if you're physically punched, you punch back, you know. Uh, some people, they flee. They run away from the conflict. They get away. They can't, they can't handle it, and they just do it. And then other people, they just freeze, and they just sit there, and they become a punching them more and more, and they don't know what to do. They're overwhelmed by the, uh, the actions that are happening uh, from my experience, you know, just interacting with people, talking to people about this, one thing, that, regardless of that initial reaction, 
of fight, flight, or freeze. I think uh, many of us have experienced that after action when things calm down in the quiet of our, our headspace, maybe our room, we, we kind of relive the experience. And in our hearts, we think of all the things we should have said and how I could have acted. And we relive this experience and, and really uh, because our ultimate desire is to, to, to lash back, to get back. There's a sense of maybe getting our pound of flesh of vengeance. And we may never carry out our plots or say those words, but deep in our hearts, we imagine and we fantasize what it would be like to, to kind of hurt that person the way they hurt us. You ever done that? Yeah. I think we're all being honest. We're nodding our heads. I know I have on more than one occasion. This, by the way, so there's no confusion, is the natural man. This is our sin nature uh, expressing itself and acting out in this way, expressing itself in the depths of our hearts. And so in this very famous passage, which contains the, the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, Jesus puts a different response for those of us who follow him. He, he expects us to respond in a particular way. And so let's start, first of all, with the context of these verses. And as you, as you look at these commands that Jesus gives us, there's three different kinds of context that we need to consider. Um, is that displaying up there? Okay, okay. I'll let you guys put it up there whenever you're able to. Um, there's three different kinds of context. There's, first of all, kind of the, the greater biblical context and the context of Scripture and, and history itself. You know, if you go back in time far enough, uh, history and human civilizations were plagued by blood feuds, uh, feuds between families or tribes or even nations that would go on for years, decades, even centuries, where one would hit, the other would hit back harder than the other would hit, and it would just escalate and escalate and escalate. And this was such a problem in the ancient world that in 1800 BC, I'm going to go back to your world history classes, a guy by the name of Hammurabi. Anybody remember Hammurabi? Okay, like five of us. But anyway, Hammurabi was the emperor of the Babylonian Empire who came out with a law code. And in that law code, he established a sense of proportional justice. It's called lex talionis, an eye for an eye. In other words, you could only have a punishment for an offense or crime that was equal to the severity of the crime. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In fact, you find this principle within the law of God in the Old Testament. But of course, this sense of, of, of a rule that put borders and boundaries around the enforcement of the law, when put into the hands of human beings who are sinners, just it doesn't work. Because, again, we will mutate it. We will twist it. As, as Mahatma Gandhi once said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And sooner or later, the world will, or the world will soon be uh, blind and toothless. Because we will continue. You hit me, I will hit you back harder, and then they will hit me. And it just creates a cycle of abuse. And this is not how it's supposed to be. And so there's two, actually, in the greater portion of Scripture... You, there's several examples, but two really good examples where God puts guardrails in place. And we, he also gives us an illustration of it in the life of a famous patriarch. Uh, so, for example, when we go to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, you will see God putting a, a boundary, a guardrail up in place 
about this idea of an eye for an eye. He says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In other words, even as we pursue justice, it isn't supposed to be done out of vengeance and a violent sense of vengeance to, to get our pound of flesh. It's to be done out of love. And then you go to, to Micah chapter 6, verse 8, and you read, He has told you, a man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to pursue justice in your life and in your world, to love mercy, kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, it is not loving to use the, the justice of the law for personal vengeance when somebody offends you or hurts you in some way. That's not what God is doing here. However, legally pursuing justice, the legal sense of justice applied properly, it's actually a, a right and a good expression of God's character. We are to pursue justice in our society, in our relationships, in our world, and doing so in the right way is a, an, an expression of God's character. It's actually an expression of God's love for the victim who has been hurt and oppressed. And we, we see a great example of this in the life of Job. Most of you know who Job is. I don't need to go through his entire life story. He was the guy who lived righteously before God, and Satan said, if you would let me have at him, he will reject and deny you. And so God allows this. And Satan, of course, brings incredible turmoil and tribulation into his life. As Job is being told by his friends, what did you do to deserve this? You must have done something to offend God. In Job chapter 29, he mounts his honest assessment and defense of how he's been living his life. And we read in chapter 29 that, that Job, of course, was an elder in the city. He, he sat in the city gates and he acted as a judge for those who were seeking justice, who were being oppressed. And we read in those verses that when the ear heard that I was going to be sitting there, it called me blessed. When the eye saw that I was present, it approved because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. And I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. And listen to this carefully. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and I made him drop his prey from his teeth. We, we have to keep, when we come to passages like the one before us this morning, we have to keep in mind the entirety of Scripture's teachings when it talks about conflict and oppression and abuse and sin and crimes. We, we don't uh, come to these verses in a vacuum. We need to keep these biblical Verses in mind, keep it in context, to love our neighbor as ourselves as we interpret and apply what Jesus meant in this passage. Many will come to this passage and this idea of turn the other cheek, for example, and they misinterpret it and they misapply what he's saying because they don't keep the entirety of biblical counsel in mind. For example, many years ago, more than 30 years ago, I was serving with Catherine's dad 
in Gulfport. I was associate pastor. He was the senior pastor. And one night around supper time, he calls me and very cryptically says, Jerry, be ready at nine o'clock. I'm coming by to pick you up. We won't be back until tomorrow morning. Click. <laughs> you never knew what that meant with my father-in-law. But uh, on this particular day, he picks me up. And on the way over, he explains. This family had been attending our church for about a year. And the wife had come to him finally and private and explained and told how she was being horrendously abused by her husband. And the examples that he, she gave were absolutely horrific. And so he was off at work uh, at the base, uh, working third shift, and we arrived at 9 o'clock. The children were sleeping. We have quickly gathered everything up again. I mean, we packed that almost entire house, everything they would need, into a U-Haul. We grabbed the sleeping children. We laid them down in the back, and we took that woman and that family four and a half hours away to a, a private place in the panhandle of Florida where her husband would not find her. You know, the sad thing is, and the conversation for years and the different churches she had gone to, she had told her pastors about the situation she was living in, and more than one pastor responded with, you need to turn the other cheek. That you need to just trust God. He has not sexually cheated on you. You don't have grounds to divorce him, and so you need to stay there and trust God with your safety and with your welfare, and that God will ultimately change his heart because you should love your enemy and turn the other cheek. You see, they were taking these verses, not considering the entirety, context, the context of all of Scripture, to pursue justice. On that night, Catherine's daddy was like Job, being a father to the needy, breaking the fangs of the unrighteous and making him drop his prey from his teeth. He was obeying God's command to love his neighbor like himself and pursue justice and ultimately turn the man in to the police for his crimes. That's got to be kept in mind. What Jesus says in this passage of loving our enemies, doing good to those who hurt us and turn the other cheek, must be understood in the context of God's greater revelation of himself, how we are to live before him from all of Scripture. Do you get that? Nod your head if you understand where I'm coming from. There's a biblical context there. There's also a cultural context a historical context that we need to consider. Jesus is preaching to an audience in first century Israel, early part of the first century. And they had been indoctrinated by the rabbis who were consumed with this idea of what does it mean to love your neighbor? In particular, who is my neighbor? And their answer and the way most of this audience understood Jesus when uh, he was talking about love, and if you love your neighbor, this means you love your fellow Jew. Your neighbor is your Jewish person. It's not a Gentile. They're dogs. It's okay to despise them. You don't have to love them. They are your enemies. This was indoctrinated into them. And so when Jesus says, love your enemies, whoa, <coughs> excuse me, you're saying I have to love Gentiles? I have to love the Romans who are occupying my land right now. I'm to turn a cheek to the Romans. You can see why they would be confused because there's cultural context. And then a final context that we, again, have to keep in mind. There's an immediate context. Remember uh, four weeks ago when we started this passage, um, I told you this is one 
big sermon. And verses 20 to 26, that, that, that message from a month ago, was like the introduction to Jesus' sermon. The verses right before the ones that we've read this morning are Jesus expressing woes, expressions of dismay upon those like the people of Job's day who pursued their lives at the expense of others who lived for today with no regard for God. And he says, how sad it is that you fill your life with the things of this world. This is what you value, thinking it's going to bring satisfaction, and you do so at the expense of the others. You use other people and you abuse them to accumulate your riches, and you think you've made it, but what you don't realize is that this is as good as it's going to get for you. You better enjoy what you have right now because there is coming a day where God's justice will not be mocked and you will face him. And then earlier, before the woes are the Beatitudes. Blessed are the ones who weep. And you remember in that portion, Jesus is telling us that followers of him, those who follow him, we have to expect earthly troubles. We have to understand that there will be tribulations and trials because of our allegiance to him, because we simply live in a fallen world, we're going to have difficulties and troubles and trials. In particular, if you look at verse 22, we have to keep this verse in mind as we now come to loving our enemies. Verse 22 of Luke chapter 6 says, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So in this audience, Jesus is talking to people who had not yet trusted in him, whose understanding of the law was wrong in some respects because of the way the rabbis and their traditions had changed it. So they were living opposite of what God had revealed in the Old Covenant. But primarily in this sermon, Jesus is preaching to us. He's preaching to those who follow him, to his disciples, and he's warning us of what it's going to cost us to follow him. We're going to face troubles and tribulations. We are going to be oppressed. We're going to be taken advantage of. We're going to be ridiculed. Sometimes that's going to happen simply because we live in a fallen world. And you can be a victim of crime or one thing after another. Sometimes it happens because of our allegiance to Jesus. And so the question then becomes, how do we respond to this? And the The general takeaway principle from these verses this morning, if you can put the takeaway truth up on the screen, it is working. Okay, it's working behind me. It's not working on any monitors, guys. So will you take control of whatever needs to be done there? The general takeaway truth here is that followers of Jesus actively pursue what is good for others, even those who mistreat them. Followers of Jesus actively pursue what is good for others, even those who treat them, or mistreat them. Now you understand why I call this what I believe is Jesus' hardest commandment. It is hard. I say to you who hear, love your enemies, not just your neighbor. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. <clears throat> Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Jesus calls for us to love when we're mistreated. Now, Luke wrote, not in English, but in Greek. We have one word, love. The Greeks had 
four words, three of which appear in the Bible on a regular basis. There's eros, which is sexual love, and phileo, brotherly love. But the love that is being, the word being used here is agape. Now, lexicons tell us that agape means that we are to have a warm regard for people, an interest in them, to cherish them, to have a loving concern for someone based upon sincere appreciation. So in other words, we are to love our, we are to have a high esteem, a sincere regard and interest in the welfare of our enemies. That's hard. It's hard to give a rip for people who mistreat you. It's hard to care for them. You certainly don't want to see them succeed and be blessed and literally to cherish them. Doesn't that just seem contradictory? Here's Jesus saying, Rick, cherish your enemies. I mean, that, are you kidding me? I mean, I cherish my friends. I cherish my love. Cherish my enemies. That's hard. Now, most of us don't go around saying, you know what? That person over there, she's my enemy. He's my enemy. I mean, do any of you have enemies? Okay, we don't even admit that, do we? We don't think about that. I mean, an enemy is like the country that wants to kill us, right? We don't even think of criminals as our enemies, typically. You know, enemies are like war. That they're my, are, but that's not how the scriptures view it. We all have enemies. And newsflash, you are the enemy of others at times. Uh, when you think about an enemy... In fact, let me ask you this. How would you fill in the blank? An enemy treats me like dirt. <laughs> wow, you didn't even you didn't hesitate. Wow, an enemy treats me like dirt. How would, you, how would you fill in that blank? An enemy treats me like, how would you fill that in? The idea here is uh, an enemy is somebody who subjects you to hostility, antagonism, derision, scorn. Um, I like the way Paul Miller explains it and amplifies it in his book um, about Jesus and see Jesus. He says, an enemy is someone who looks at you through a grid of negativity. If someone in your life is looking at you and responding to you through a grid of negativity, they look at what you do, and in some way or another, they twist it into something negative, that person is your enemy. It doesn't mean they'll always be your enemy, but at that point in time, they're your enemy. And so when you understand it like that, every one of us who's married, yeah, at one time or another, we have been the enemy or we've been sleeping with the enemy. Okay? We've all experienced where somebody... Maybe a spouse, a family member, a coworker. You reach a hand out. You try to do something loving and nice towards them. And no matter what you do, they somehow turn it back on you. They're suspicious of it. They turn it into something like you're trying to manipulate. Or, and, and really, you just wanted to express love and friendship and compassion or whatever towards them. But they can't receive it. When they, whatever you do, they look at through a grid of negativity. That person is your enemy. And the response is to be love. To love them. 
do good for them. This, this expression, to do good, bless, pray. This is all amplification of what it looks like to love this person who sees you through a grid of negativity. Do you have somebody in your life right now who sees you through a grid of negativity? And this passage applies to that relationship that you have with this person. He goes on to say, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who's taken away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back as you wish that others would do to you. Do so to them. This is really where it gets hard. I mean, what is Jesus saying here? What does he mean? What is he not saying here? What is he not saying? That's, that's also important. Again, we have to interpret and apply what Jesus says in the immediate context of these verses. And so right away, you have to go back to verse 22 and say at the very least, he's talking about when someone mocks and scorns and, <clears throat> excuse me, and makes fun of us or or, or treats us contemptibly because of our belief in Jesus Christ. At the very least, he's talking about those situations. But I think even more is indicated here. We have to understand it, that greater biblical context, just evil in general and sin in general that is committed against us. Jesus is saying here, turn the other cheek. What does that mean? Again, Cultural context, important. In the, in the ancient world, um, being smacked across the cheek, with the back of the hand, was a way to formally, for one thing, it's a way to formally institute a legal process. Like, I'm going to sue Rick, smack. You didn't get served with papers, you got smacked in the face. Okay? Um, it was also a way that you could, you could communicate derision a way to bring shame and ostracism upon a person. If you wanted to publicly humiliate them in some way, you would smack them across the cheek. But he's not talking here. This isn't talking about, um, you know, if somebody comes up to you and they just full out knock your teeth out with a punch to the right jaw that you turn to them and say, thank you for knocking my teeth out on this side. Could you do the same thing over here? That's... That's not what's going on here. You have to understand what these kinds of expressions mean within the cultural context. So being struck on the cheek in that day was a formal way to insult somebody, to maybe even enter into a legal lawsuit against him so that they experienced in some way a loss of face, public shame, denigration. And in our day, it'll be that person at work who makes a snarky comment about you in front of your coworkers. They have now slapped you in the cheek because they are trying to diminish you in the eyes of other people. Or when you're at a family gathering and that sibling who you've never gotten along with all of your life just picks up where they started off, you know, the last time you were with them five years ago. And they're trying to denigrate you and diminish you in the eyes of the family. You're being hit across the cheek. And Jesus says, turn the other cheek towards them. So he's not, he's not referring to the, the typical physical violence that can be, can be committed in the course of a crime. Those who come to this passage and they say, well, we should turn the other cheek, therefore, we have to be a pacifist. And we, and we don't engage in protection or any form of physical violence to protect our nation or our families or ourselves. They are, they are misinterpreting and misapplying what this passage is saying. 
This isn't saying that the person who comes and breaks into your house in the middle of the night and says, I want your stuff, and they want to abuse you and your family and steal your things, that you cannot protect yourself or that you cannot pursue justice. In fact, when you understand it within the scope of Scripture, you're supposed to protect the innocent. You're supposed to pursue justice. You're supposed to ensure that that person who is breaking the law is held accountable for it in some way, and you're supposed to do it in a way that is loving. Oh, that's hard. We'll get to that in a moment. So at the very least... When Jesus is saying, love your enemies, he's saying when you are in these types of situations, he is reinforcing those guardrails that are put before us in the Old Testament by God to love the person as your neighbor and at the same time, pursue justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before your God. All of that is in play as you experience this occasion. And that's what it looks like to love. But I think there's more here, too. I really appreciate what Tim Keller has teased out over the years as he's written on this topic and on this passage and similar passages. He, he points out that the wrong, by turning the other cheek, that the wrong response is the passive response. And that when we respond passively, those people who, you know, I, I have a, a, someone I know very well they act as it's, it's godlier for them to suffer in silence and be molly martyr. And that is not what's happening here. And in fact, what's happening, and oftentimes a person who just passively takes it over and over again, and, and they may pretend that they're godlier because of it, Keller points out that really what's going on is that there's an idolatry of the heart. They are afraid of what will happen by losing control, at least they're controlling the devil they know. What about the devil they don't know? And so out of fear, I will, I will keep the status quo rather than do the right thing, which is to pursue justice because of the unknown factors that are involved in that pursuit of justice. So that lady in Mississippi confessed that even as those pastors told her she should turn the other cheek and take it, she knew in her heart they were wrong. But she said this. She said, but I just couldn't imagine life without him. What would, what would I do with the children? How would I survive? How would I live my life? It was better for me to put up with what I had than to face what I then wouldn't have. And, and by the way, I bring that up not in any way to condemn that woman. I mean, people who find themselves in this kind of a situation, our hearts have got to be filled with compassion and love for them because when you're in that kind of a situation, you don't, you don't always think clearly. I mean, again, you talk about brain science. I mean, you're just in, you're just in survival mode and you're, trying to, you're just trying to make the best of a bad situation. So you know, let me say it another way. If you're in that situation or if you are ever in that kind of a situation, I don't care if guys, gals, doesn't matter what it is. I want you to know we want you. We're asking you to come to us. Let us help you get out of that situation. Let us help you get justice reestablished in your life. Because that's what God wants for you. Because if you just keep taking it and taking it, the end is tragic. 
At one end of the continuum, it can result in a person's death or severe injuries and just ongoing cycles of violence that affects the generations. Or, as we often see, the person takes it and takes it and takes it and it builds up and it builds up and it builds up. And then what happens? They explode in wrath. Devastation occurs and death occurs. We see this in families. We see this in school shootings as, as kids are bullied and they take it and they take it and they finally erupt. And all of this happens so often in, in Christian homes and Christian relationships because we think this is what Jesus means to love our enemy and to turn the other cheek. And that's not it at all. When he says love our enemies, do good, pray for them, bless them, turn the other cheek, what he's saying here is that our, our outer actions, our outer responses, and our inner man are to be in balance with all of these principles and truths of the gospel, like love your neighbor as yourself, like do justice, pursue it, but do it humbly before God, loving mercy, that our inner man, our outer man in, is in harmony. Jesus is not telling us to ignore the abuse and the oppression. Not at all. Instead, he's telling us that we're to be controlled by the Holy Spirit to have an inner peace as we confront the sinner and the sinful behavior. In other words, we live justly as we address the injustice. We do good as we address that which is not good. We don't sin as we oppose sin and the sinner. We oppose injustice and sin. Not out of vindictive anger. Not out of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and I'm gonna get my pound of flesh. Not out of self-justifying anger and wrath. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That's what is unscriptural. But instead, we confront it, we deal with it out of love, love for God, for his justice, for his grace, for his glory, and we do so out of love for the good of the person. Ultimately, the good of that person is to come to grips with their sin so that they can repent and God can redeem them, amen? And that doesn't happen if we sit passively by and just allow ourselves to be victimized. At the very least, when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he's saying, give them the gospel again. Proclaim it again. Live it out to them again. Demonstrate it to them again. This is what you see in the early church in the book of Acts as they are abused or taken advantage of or they're treated unfairly. They respond with grace, giving the truth and the good news of Jesus Christ to the person who mistreats them. At the very least, this is what it means to turn the other cheek. But Jesus gives us a beautiful example of this, of what it looks like to love your enemies and turn the other cheek. On the night that he was arrested, Remember, he's brought before the high priest and the Sanhedrin, and they're interrogating him. It's an illegal trial. The law is being broken. And in the middle of this illegal trial, an officer of the court of the temple comes over and just full out slugs Jesus in the face. 
How did Jesus respond? Did he say, why, thank you, sir. Could I have another one, please? Absolutely not. Now, how could he have responded? He's God in the flesh. He could have said, fire, please. (laughs) And he's turned to ash. But instead, Jesus didn't call down vindictive fire, and he also didn't ignore it. He turned to the person who had abused him, and he rebuked him graciously, calmly, and he asked him, why did you do this? Why did you just break the law? What did I do that deserved that? He responded with calm, peace, truth himself. So when we turn the other cheek, we aren't saying, hit me again. We are responding properly. We're speaking the truth in a love, in a loving way. In a sense, if you're in a relationship, let's say, with a person, turning the cheek is essentially saying to that person, I'm willing to give you a do-over. If you, if you are willing for the right reasons to be in a relationship with me, I am willing to forgive you and to hit the reset button on the relationship, to see if our relationship cannot be restored and reconciled, and if God could perhaps redeem this event and redeem this relationship. That's what's being said when we turn the other cheek. It doesn't mean that we sit there and we passively allow ourselves to be abused psychologically, emotionally, physically, over and over and over again. It doesn't mean that we pretend that it never happened. It means that we deal with it head on and we offer the grace of the gospel and the forgiveness that can happen and the reconciliation that can happen in relationships when we bring them before the Lord Jesus Christ in honest repentance. That's what it means when we turn the other cheek. And just so we don't lose the point, Jesus closes out this portion by repeating himself. So when you have repetition in the Bible, that's the Holy Spirit saying, hello, pay attention. I'm really serious about this. And he says, love your enemies and do good. Lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Jesus does not give us a checklist of every kind of scenario and situation that we're going to face. It's impossible. Instead, what he does is he gives us these superintending, big, truths that we then have to grapple with and trust the Holy Spirit to help us apply to the situations that we are in. It's the spirit of the command that we have to distill. And we have to say, what does it look like in this situation for me to love this person who is an enemy? What does it look like for me to love this person who is asking money of me or assistance from me? And the command is clear. Love them. Do good for them. Pray for them. Bless them. So it is love that determines whether we give to someone who asks assistance and not love of our bank account or our possessions. But you know, it's complicated, isn't it? Because most of us have experienced those 
individuals in our lives. Most of us have at least one or more, perhaps, in our family, neighborhood, that to love them or to, to give them financial assistance and money is not actually the loving thing to do because they might use it to just turn around and participate in their addiction again. And the loving thing is to have to sit by and painfully watch this person hit rock bottom before you can step in and help. And so these verses, if if you take it literally, we're all broke by next week because there's so many beggars between here and Publix where none of us are going to have any money left. So there's there's these these verses have to be taken in context. We have to, to grapple with them and say, what does it mean? How do I even do this? Because this is a hard saying. I was raised in a neighborhood where if, if you didn't punch back, you're just going to get punched more. And, and man, that, that shaped me as a kid, and, and it's made it difficult. How do I respond in a way that is gracious and loving when I'm punched, figuratively, so to speak? Some of us have been in situations where these kinds of situations occur. And how do we show mercy to someone who sins against us in such an egregious manner? And I think what we see in these final verses there, that Jesus is calling us to live out the very truth that we ourselves rely upon. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Christians, we all start out as God's enemies. And how did he respond to us? With agape love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, Think about what Paul tells us in Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. This command is absolutely impossible to obey. What Jesus gives us here is absolutely impossible for us to comprehend it and apply it unless we anchor it in our understanding, anchor our understanding and our obedience and what we ourselves have received and experience through Christ. Because Jesus became God's enemy and was forsaken by him on the cross, we who started out as God's enemies have now been adopted as his sons and daughters. Because Jesus became God's enemy and was forsaken on the cross, we who started out as God's enemy now have the Holy Spirit living and working within us. And what is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? What is the very first fruit that Paul lists in Galatians chapter 5? What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love. Love. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith. All of this is ours, and this is the work of the Spirit. And it takes all of that for us to love our enemies. One final word. Some of you are still God's enemies. Now, you hear that word, and you may think, hey, listen, I may not be a Christian, but I'm not God's enemies. Uh, You may think that, but that's not what God says about you. And so I'm going to ask you, to if, if you don't understand what I just said, if you think, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not God's enemy, I'm not a Christian, but I'm not his enemy, would you please let me take you to lunch? Because there's a great promise in this passage. 
God is saying to you, there is a path to no longer being his enemy, but having true everlasting peace. We'd love to show it to you. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the complexity for the, the, and the way it challenges us. Lord, we, we confess our inability to obey it apart from your work of grace in our lives. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you became the enemy of our heavenly father so that we could become his friends, so that we could be his sons and daughters. Would you help us to live out this aspect of the gospel to those who are in our lives? They may not physically hurt us, but words and attitudes and perceptions that are so damaging. We need your grace to deal with these things. Help us to do so in a way that brings honor to you, that wins over the enemy so that they become your friend and ours. In your name we pray, amen.